Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. It was like so, but wasn't. This is the second podcast we've recorded today and the second really short quote. This is what happens when I run out of time and I need to find a quote very quickly. I think, no, that one's too long. I can't read it to make sure there's nothing objectionable in it. All right, then. Well, speaking of objectionable. And thinking of things that were like so but weren't. Okay, then. We were um, we were going to talk today about uh, an interesting thing that I saw yeah. uh, the other day, uh, which is, um, well, in a way, it's sort of a drone. Because it, it starts with a uh, the RQ-4 Global Hawk. Yes. A, a drone aircraft that is um, – well, its status is sort of in question right now. As, as of the time we're recording this, they're uh, negotiating the budget for uh, – United, you know, uh, the defense budget for the United States of America. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's one of the items that was considered to be struck. Now, of course, um, over the past few years, unmanned aerial vehicles have been – 
uh, coming up a lot in the news. They've been uh, instrumental in several of the uh, the military uh, engagements around the world with the United States. I mean, mm-hmm, U.S. Mm-hmm. Has, has employed unmanned aerial vehicles in lots of cases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the proposal was that there would be $342 million budgeted um, to uh, to work on the Global Hawk. And uh, as it turns out, uh, it, it's been proposed that uh, they drop the item entirely in favor of a m- much more uh, much more or less cutting edge technology yeah. in a way. And the reason one of the reasons to talk about cutting this whole global hawk thing is because uh, it's expensive. Yeah, the estimated cost of a single global hawk is one hundred and seventy six million dollars. That's expensive. So they had they had enough. Uh, they had just. They didn't even quite have enough money in the budget for two of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you could get one and seven-eighths of a Global Hawk for the budget they had proposed. Mm-hmm. So the the alternative right now for a – and the, the purpose of the Global Hawk, we should say, it's, is a, it's a reconnaissance aircraft. Yes, it, it doesn't uh, attack people. It is It is there for surveillance purposes. Yeah, specifically spying. Yes. So, you know, there are a lot of unmanned aerial vehicles that have been developed over the last several years. Many of them are designed to get a real-time uh, uh, feel of what's going on in certain environments. And they, uh, they're designed to do things like fly through areas that could be combat zones, but they're not necessarily designed to spy, to be you know, able to, to fly through undetected. It's more about getting as quick and accurate a picture of the situation as it exists right now, rather than let's go find out what those pesky so-and-sos over there are doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So our pesky so-and-so technology uh, tends to be much more sneaky. It's designed to be very fast. Usually it's designed to fly very, very high uh, so that it can try to avoid things like radar as well as missiles, you know, attempts to take it down. Uh, and it's designed to try and gather as much information as quickly as possible. Uh, and since the 1950s, that technology has been one particular type of aircraft in the United States. Uh, even though we've tried to replace it on multiple occasions, we're still using it today. And the it's what we will be using instead of the Global Hawk, the Lockheed U-2. Yes. Believe it or not, um, they're saying that the, the U-2 is actually a better piece of technology uh, in, in some ways than the uh, the newer unmanned aerial vehicle. And like I said, the replacement for the U-2 has, has, was built mm-hmm. and was retired already, which was the SR-71 Blackbird, but we'll get yes. into that. Oh, I uh, love the SR-71 It's a Blackbird. gorgeous design, right? Yep. So the, yeah, the Blackbird, which was designed to be the replacement for the U-2, <laughs> it actually lived out its useful life in the U.S. Air Force and then was retired because, uh, well, it was really expensive to maintain as mm-hmm. well. In fact, well, and I'll talk about why it was expensive to maintain because that's kind of an interesting story. But to, to understand the U-2, we have to go back quite a bit. And we're not going to use the Wayback Machine because uh, I found out that uh, Stuff You Should Know used it about a week and a half ago. And apparently they left it somewhere. Like, they actually hoofed it back from 1347, and I have no idea what they were doing back then. But, uh, yeah, so I have no idea. We have to track it down. So we're just going to have to talk about it today. All right, then. 
But well, um, so <laughs> then you would probably go back in time if we were using the machine. Yes. To uh, about uh, well. August 1955 is the first day it ever flew. Yes, August 1st, 1955. It's the first flight of the U-2. Now, the whole purpose for developing the U-2 stems out of the Cold War between the United States and the then USSR. Yes. Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Um, So the whole reason for it was that we needed to have, we being the United States, because from the U.S., the United States needed to have some sort of vehicle to get an idea of what was going on in a potential uh, uh, wartime enemy. Mm-hmm. Now, the Cold War was uh, was called the Cold War because it wasn't like there were uh, actual physical outbreaks of violence between the two countries, but there was a true rivalry of global proportions going on between the two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we there were needs. Each each country felt the need to find out as much about what was going on in the other country as possible, and so they were developing their own ways of spying on each other. Mm-hmm. Of course, this also uh, figured into the space race. Um, we've talked about the thing what beeped. Yes, Sputnik. Uh, Sputnik that they sent up uh, from the Soviet Union um, shortly after that period. Uh, but it was around the same time they were looking for ways to spy on each other. Yeah. Uh, of course, satellite technology entered into it, but uh, the U-2 predates uh, satellite. that because, and, and I mean, it was already flying by by that point. Yeah. So uh, this is during the Eisenhower administration in the mm-hmm. United States history. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so there were several the, – the government, the United States government actually invited several different companies to submit proposals for a – Spy plane. Mm-hmm. That's pretty typical, right? And the the company that won out was Lockheed. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, a fellow by the name of Clarence Kelly Johnson mm-hmm. who was put in charge of the development of this spy plane. Uh, Johnson also was instrumental in creating the the facility that was the testing grounds for this particular airplane, and that facility has gone on to gain incredible notoriety. Yes, partially because it was very innovative and partially because it just has a very cool name. And it was very, very, very secret about everything. And that cool name, at least that's the the popular name for it, Mm -hmm. is Area 51. Yes. So if you always wondered what Area 51 was about and you've heard about things like UFOs and aliens. UFOs. What it really was about was a testing ground for secret aircraft. And the U-2 was very much a secret aircraft. The United States did not – really talk about what the U-2 was for until they were forced to. And we'll get into that story, too, because that's pretty dramatic. Yeah. yeah. But but before we get into that, let's talk more about what the U-2 actually was. And uh, uh, Oh, and in case you're just wondering, Area 51, also popularly known as Groom Lake, because it's a, a dry lake bed was mm-hmm. where it was built on. And uh, I think in the future, we're going to have to do a podcast all about Area 51 because it was such a cool place. Mm-hmm. It's not really a, not really a thing anymore. Yeah. But um it was definitely a neat idea and some really cool technology was developed there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, getting back to the U2. Yep. It's got a uh now um this this sucker can fly at uh at altitudes of more than 70,000 feet. 21,000 meters. Yes. Um that's pretty high up. Yeah. To no, say the very least. That's when you think about commercial jetliners are tend to be between 30 and 35,000 feet, sometimes a little higher. Uh, you know, that's more than twice as high up. 
and uh, it was built. It was built with a really, really long wings, almost like a glider, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a very light airframe. Yeah, as the well. uh, the. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, the wingspan of the U2 is about 105 feet, or you know, 32 meters or so. Uh, the length is 63 feet, or about 19.2 meters, and height uh, 16 feet, about 4.8 meters. It only weighs 16,000 pounds, uh, which, when you think about it, is pretty light. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's got one General Electric F118-101 engine. Yeah, uh, although there were other engines used in the U-2 during its entire history. Uh, there, uh, there was a, a J-57 turbojet engine, the mm-hmm. J-75 turbojet engine, and then the General Electric F-118 turbofan engine. Uh, they have all been used in U-2s throughout its history of its service in the United States. Also, mm-hmm. oh, before we get too much further into the technical details, one yeah. other interesting element – Originally, this was pitched to the Air Force. Mm-hmm. The Air Force decided it did not – the the Air Force decided not to fund it. Mm-hmm. The funding came from the CIA. Yeah. So the Central Intelligence Agency is actually responsible for the development of the U-2. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, the pilots of those early U-2s were all CIA pilots mm-hmm. because the idea was that if you had a – uh, a plane go down, and the pilot of that plane was a member of the United States military, it could look like a military action against another country. Mm-hmm. Because you were a pilot for the CIA, you had to be a civilian. So you actually would go through and and quit a, mil- a branch of the military service. You would no mm-hmm. longer be a part of the Air Force. You would become a civilian and be employed by the CIA, and that would give you the deniability that it was a military action against another country. Right. Sneaky. Well, of course. Um, also, sneaky, if you're wondering how much these aircraft cost, they won't tell you that no. information is classified. There's actually a lot of information classified about the U-2. Like, we can't tell you specifically all the different sensors that are on board a U-2. We can tell you that it does have a camera, mm-hmm. uh, actually it has multiple cameras in order sure. to, to get a visual a representation of what's what it's flying over. It also has sensors that can detect the quality of the air and, and perhaps even sniff out things like uh, chemicals that would be indicative of a nuclear facility in mm-hmm. the area. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got Supposedly, it has sensors that can allow it to even eavesdrop on cell phone conversations. Interesting. And there's also a data link that allows it to upload information in real time to mm. a uh, remote location. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's got a. It has infrared cameras and an optical bar camera, um, and uh, it does have a uh, you know uh, advanced radar capabilities as well. Um, so it's uh, it's certainly able to pay a lot of attention to what's going on in the world around it, um, even from the altitudes that it can reach. Uh, it does have a crew of one. We know that much. Yeah, it's it's designed to be a one-person uh, aircraft. I have heard that there are a few examples of two-man U-2s, but they are specifically built for training purposes. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. are not – they're not actually used in service. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does. It can reach a speed of about 410 miles per hour. It's not, uh, you know, we're not talking about uh, breaking the speed of sound. No. Um, which is unlike the SR-71. Yes, which that was one of the reasons why the SR-71 was developed was they wanted the government wanted something that was even faster and could fly even higher mm-hmm. than the U-2. 
And the SR-71 could do both those things. It could mm-hmm. fly at an altitude of around 90,000 feet, and it could fly very fast indeed. Yes. Which works for the X-Men. Yes. Sort of. Yeah. Um, and More uh, often than not. <laughs> and if you're wondering, uh, there are about 33 of them. They yes. are still active. Yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, despite, uh, as, as Jonathan said earlier, despite attempts to phase them out as uh, older, outmoded technology – they're just too good at what they do. Yeah, well, it turns out the other stuff that was built to replace them wasn't good enough and mm-hmm. was more expensive. So while you had aircraft that could fly faster and higher, uh, the one of the big drawbacks of the Blackbird was that it did not have a data link. Mm-hmm. So when you sent a Blackbird out on a mission – In the dead of night? You had to wait for it to come back and dump all that information – for you to be able to look at it. You couldn't get updates as the mission was going on, at least not of all the data that it was collecting. You know, the pilot could communicate, presumably. Yeah. Uh, but Smartphone. Yeah. yeah. There's an app for that. <laughs> but uh, Flying over foreign power, LOL. <laughs> nice. R-O-T-F-L. Uh, the, uh, the only uh, – there were some other interesting things about the U-2. Uh, it's landing gear. Mm-hmm. It has, you know, most most aircraft that we think of today has have the uh, landing gear where there's the the one set of wheels up front and then the two set of wheels in the back, so it's almost like a tricycle. Mm-hmm. You know, U uh, two does not have that. It has uh, more like a bicycle setup. It's got one the the front set of wheels and back set of wheels are in line with one another. Mm-hmm. Now it does have uh, wheels called pogos. That are attached to the wings for takeoff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, to give it stability when you're taking off uh, with a U2. But then once you take off, you jettison those wheels. They're gone. And you only, when you're coming into land, you only have those two sets of wheels. So you're thinking, how can you maintain balance? Well, the, uh, the wings have skids on them to protect the wings. It's apparently really, really hard to fly a U2. <laughs> And, and more so, not just because of the landing thing, although landing apparently is one of the most difficult maneuvers you can do with the U-2 because uh, the wings are so wide, uh, the, the uh, a little crosswind can very much affect the U-2. It can start gliding off track, and uh, it's it's really hard to correct for that. Another issue is that it's designed to fly at a very high altitude. Mm-hmm. Well, at that altitude, the atmosphere is not as thick. Yeah, it's a thinner atmosphere. Well, in order to give precise controls at that altitude, the controls are extremely responsive mm-hmm. when you are flying through a very thin atmosphere. So, just a t- a tiny little adjustment by the pilot is going to uh, result in a a pretty dramatic uh, change in the the plane's behavior. Mm-hmm. All right, when you start going down. You start descending and the atmosphere is starting to get thicker. Suddenly, those controls aren't as responsive. Mm-hmm. And you have to do more to get the plane to do what you want it to do. So as you're descending from that height where you're actually spying and everything and you're coming down, uh, the plane becomes less responsive. And the pilot has to use a lot more force to get the plane to do what he wants it or she wants it to do. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it, it is supposed to be or supposedly one of the most difficult aircraft to master because the two sets of flying uh, uh, scenarios are so different. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. 
on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As if that weren't enough, because of the way the plane is configured, it's kind of hard to see out of. Yeah. Um, the, the nose is very long. Yep. And it's difficult to see uh, out the back because of the, the uh, tail. So uh, as a matter of fact, um, uh, Jonathan, I, I've actually seen information that suggests that many pilots call it the most difficult plane in the world to fly. Yeah. And, and it actually requires, in some instances, actually requires a second set of eyes. Somebody else will go up after the U-2 to, uh, to help it get down. Yes. Uh, somebody who's sort of, if you will, it's sort of a, a visual spotter. They go, oh, you know, There's, you're, yeah, sometimes you're lined up. It, sometimes it's a person in a souped up car. That's a, a second, really? a second U-2 pilot who is, uh, oh. being driven 
on in a souped up car going alongside the the plane as it's coming down and giving verbal directions to the pilot so that the pilot hasn't indication of of how far they are from the surface and whether they need to make any adjustments. Yeah. So they'll be in a car traveling at a pretty good clip of speed. Okay, see I that was my uh that was my assumption because it said my notes say high performance vehicle and it didn't say what kind of vehicle yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a high performance car. So okay. It's the Blues Mobile actually the is Blues what it is. Mobile. And then they just ch- the, they have that that megaphone on top and they're like all right, here's what you got to do. You got to go down 2 feet. Two feet. Anyway, um, so yeah, it, there's that, and then there's also uh, uh, some other interesting things about the U two. Another <laughs> reason why it's so hard to fly is that it has to almost always be flying near the maximum speed of the vehicle, mm-hmm. and the reason for that is because if it starts to get down below about 19 kilometers per hour below maximum speed, which is 10 knots, mm-hmm. when it starts to drop below 10 knots from its maximum speed at whatever altitude it's at, it starts to stall. So in other words, there's a really narrow window of performance that the plane can operate at where it's not falling out of the sky. Mm-hmm. It has to be going almost full speed or else it's dropping like a rock. And uh, the pilots have a, uh, a a special name for that that little window. You were uh, that little narrow window of uh, of speed. Mm-hmm. Can you do? You, have you did you come across that? No, I did not. It's it's a charming name. It is the coffin corner. <laughs> nice. So yeah, it's um, yeah pilots pilots have a, a interesting set of um, of of terms for various things. They have a. Yes. They have a very dry and uh, realistic view of the world. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, interesting design. So why well, – sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, um, well, the design has changed over the years yes, somewhat. Yes. I mean, they've they've made some adaptations for it. It was originally based on the F-104 mm-hmm. uh, fighter jet. But, um, you know, it has they, – they actually, the version that they fly now is somewhat longer and has uh, – they've, they've upgraded the, uh, the avionics systems in the past. They didn't originally use digital uh, systems. They were right. using um, analog gauges. Uh, but they've, they've updated all those things now. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a much more um, – I mean, of course, the plane itself is based on the original design. It's just uh, – it's been adapted and updated as, as necessary over the years have, uh, have gone by. So – and for the first several years of mm-hmm. the U-2's existence, <clears throat> the government, of course, did not admit that it had this spy plane. They they said that the U-2 that you know, people knew that the U-2 existed. Mm-hmm. They just didn't know what it was for. And uh, the the reason given mostly was that it was a a vehicle used to uh, examine the weather patterns and weather conditions. Mm-hmm. It was all about gathering information about. The environment that it wasn't anything about a spy plane. Well, that all changed on May first, nineteen sixty. Ah, yes, yes. That is when uh, a pilot, a CIA pilot named Gary Powers, was operating a U two and crashed in Soviet territory. Mm-hmm. Now, the cause of the crash is has always been disputed. Right, right. There, there are some reports that say that what happened was he was shot down. Uh, that it was hit the the plane was was hit by a Soviet missile and it caused the plane to crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were other reports that said that the U two passed through the slipstream of another vehicle, 
another plane, and that uh, it caused the U-2 to uh, go out of control and a, a wing ripped off of it, and it crashed because of that. There's another report that said missiles were fired at the U-2, but uh, it exploded behind the plane, and mm-hmm. the that the explosion was enough to send it out of control. Uh, what is known is that there was a – unfortunately, there was another pilot, a Soviet pilot, who was uh, flying a MiG who actually did get hit mm-hmm. by the missiles that were meant for the U-2 plane and died as a result. Well, Gary Powers was shot down, but he survived. However, he was um, he was used in a, a little bit of subterfuge on top of the subterfuge he was already a part of because the premier of the Soviet Union, uh, Khrushchev mm-hmm. – didn't let the United States know that Powers survived the crash. Instead, what Khrushchev did was he said, uh, the United States had a spy plane over my country, and we shot it down, and you got some splaining to do. Chris is banging the table with his shoe. So if you don't know what that's about, look up Khrushchev and shoe. <laughs> but yes, so Khrushchev, Khrushchev was a little perturbed. Yes, that he there was. was a spy plane over. Well, the it United was an aggressive act. Yes, yeah, and how can you disagree with that? I mean, it was a spy plane. Yeah, okay. You know, like, yeah. So, did the United States say, "Yeah, okay, no"? Because again, the U.S. not aware that Powers was alive, went into the cover story that they had created for this sort of scenario, assuming that Powers had died, the Eisenhower administration said that the plane was just a weather research aircraft. It had accidentally moved into Soviet airspace. It was not meant to be there. The pilot had actually radioed that there were some problems with the equipment aboard the plane that was uh, specifically the oxygen equipment. Because when you're flying at that height, you need to have special equipment to pressurize yes. the cabin. And mm-hmm. in fact, the, the pilots of Where, the U-2 wear something that's almost like a spacesuit. Yes. Because of the, you know, otherwise you could have some real pressurization problems. So they said, no, 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 it's just a weather aircraft. Uh, it was, there were some problems that we heard about. They were supposed to be over Turkey. Uh, it was completely just a misunderstanding. And that uh, that the plane that was shot down is probably the weather plane. It's, mm-hmm. it's definitely not a spy plane. Yeah. And then Khrushchev said, the pilot's alive. <laughs> and we recovered all the information aboard the plane. It was actually in, in good condition. So we know exactly what you were looking for. Mm-hmm. And we know exactly what the purpose of this, this vehicle was. And you are a big fibbing fibber. Yes. They, uh, they said that he was okay in Moscow. Um, and he had said he he they said that he told them that he had taken off from uh, Peshawar in Pakistan, mm-hmm. um, and he was told to fly over the Soviet Union, um, basically over the uh, Aral Sea, over Sverdlovsk, Kirov, Arkhang, I can't pronounce that word, Arkhangelsk, and Murmansk to the uh, Bodo military airfield in Norway. Yeah, and so they, he he told them. He, they said he told them the exact route he was supposed to fly. Um, and of course, you know, the, the United States after that was still saying, well, that, that really wasn't, uh, wasn't what was going on there. Yeah. But, and, uh, and it was just very hard to, to deny when they had so right. much. Evidence. And there was, and there was a, a supposed to be a, 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 a summit that mm-hmm. was going to be going on, like, I think, 
a week or two after this happened, yes. and it caused quite a stir in international politics. Yeah, uh, that this and it was it was considered to be a very huge humiliating embarrassment for the United States. And well, uh, Khrushchev uh, demanded that the United States stop flying over the the Soviet Union, or you know they'd leave. Yeah. Do I need to take my shoe off again? No. I put it back on. No, no. And uh, ultimately, the international community ended up siding more with the United States than with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, other outcomes of this, uh, Powers was um, was tried and convicted mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union. In August that year. He was sentenced to several years of prison, followed by, I think, seven years of hard labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he ended up getting released as part of an exchange, a prisoner exchange. Yes, for uh, Rudolf Abel. Yeah, and that w- that took place. All right, kids, you might not know this, but when I was a kid, there were two Germanies. <laughs> there was an East Germany and there was a West Germany. No, no. And the exchange actually took place uh, uh, on a bridge between the borders of East Berlin and West Berlin. And uh, it was a very famous event. So uh, now there's no longer an East Germany and a West Germany, but back when I was a kid, there was. And that, this is what... You know, this took place at that location because the there was a Soviet-controlled part and there was the German-controlled part. Uh, all that is in the past now. Mm-hmm. Ask um, your parents about the Berlin Wall, kids. <laughs> well, there um, there were no really. I don't recall any other major famous incidents in which a U two was involved. Um, um, there was the the Zeropa tour. The Zeropa tour. Yes, and I was wondering how long I could go without making a U2 joke, and the, mm-hmm. the answer was 27 minutes. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road, and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. 
So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but uh, ironically enough, I find um, uh, NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, has used the ER2, which mm-hmm. is a basically a, a modified U2, uh, to collect information on um, the uh, on, on space phenomena and mm-hmm. and on the Earth itself. So yes, in fact, it does make a pretty good uh, you know weather and and uh, observation plane for other purposes than just spying. Yeah, but, but still uh, being used that, as a as a spy plane. Oh um, yeah. According to I just wh- thought it was kind of funny that yeah, yeah. It, you know the denials and then yeah. You know, oh well, as, as it turns out, you can use it for that. So I found out some more information about. Uh, and I was going to say talk about the Blackbird and about how um, oh, yeah. it was supposed to be. That was also developed at Area Fifty One. It was originally mm-hmm. called the A Twelve. That was its designation. Then eventually was known as the SR Seventy One Blackbird. Um, it was the successor to the U two, mm-hmm. but was retired. It, and, and it had a useful life of uh, between 1964 and 1998. 1998 was when it was retired for the second time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was kind of like a professional wrestler. And it retires and then comes back and then retires again. Uh, but in this case, I only retired the two times. And there's no real way of making more of them because they destroyed the tooling machinery back in the 60s mm-hmm. when they built the Blackbird. The idea being that they didn't want it to fall into any other hands. And so this was a way of maintaining secrecy. The downside of that is that once you run out of Blackbirds, you don't have any more of them. Uh, there's no way to make more. Um, and so uh, they actually had a lot of issues with that. And there were several Blackbirds that were involved in various accidents and mm-hmm. incidents that made them – uh, either they either were destroyed as a result or they were inoperable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they now all exist pretty much in museums. Mm-hmm. I think there might be one or two that um, belong to NASA, actually. But uh, there aren't any that are being used in military service. So the Air Force has stopped using the Blackbird. Well, you know, that was supposed to be the successor to the U-2. But they, again, stopped being used in 98. The U-2 kept going. Uh, since 1994, according to the Air Force, about $1.7 billion, with a B, dollars have been poured into the U-2 program to keep it up to date, mm-hmm. to, to modernize it, make sure that it's, you know, operating at – uh, at a, a level that that modern warfare and modern politics demands, because you know we've gotten a lot more sophisticated with the ways that we uh, detect stuff. So in order to stay ahead, it had to a lot more money had to be poured into it. Mm-hmm. And according to one source I saw, since 2003, 
the Air Force has flown more than 95,000 hours using the U-2. But keep in mind, there are only 33 of these things. Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive. Yep, yep. Well, the uh, in case you're wondering, the RQ-4 uh, may not be off the table. Um, it is uh, presumed that Northrop Grumman, the uh, company that makes – well, the primary company that makes it, uh, will – Try to get it put back into the uh, into the budget, and it may just be that it's a delay more than anything else. In fact, most of the sources I saw was that it it's it's that the date keeps getting pushed back. Like yeah. uh, originally, the uh, the U two was supposed to be retired by twenty twelve. Yeah, well, now uh, it is twenty twelve. Yeah, the most recent date I saw was twenty fifteen. Yeah, and but, then I saw one that said it may be flying as late as twenty fifty, which means it would be a hundred years old almost. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and uh, it takes three people to fly an RQ-4. You know, you have to have a, a an LRE pilot, an MCE pilot, and a sensor operator. And it only flies up to 60,000 feet, which is about 18,288 meters. Um, it it uh, ma- has a maximum speed of 357 miles per hour, about 310 knots. Um, so, you know, it's it's comparable in some ways, but in others, you know, the U-2 still outdoes it. So, yep. Um, it's It's impressive stuff. But uh, it's kind of funny to me that uh, the tried and true U2 is still hanging in there despite all these other things that that could replace it. Yeah, and part of that is the the qualities of the U2 and part of that is is purely economical. Mm -hmm. Just that, you know, there's just not the money to replace it. And that, uh, you know, we do have a need for reconnaissance vehicles. And you might ask, well, why do we need that? Because we've got satellites now, right? True. We've got satellites that can spy on stuff. And that's true. We do have satellites. But satellites are not – yeah, stuff that beeps. Satellites are not capable of of, uh, focusing in on a very specific region at a reasonable amount of time in many cases. Mm -hmm. So it may be that you've got a great view of this one region. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that the the issue that you need to look at is just outside of that that view, and in order to change the view on the satellite, it's going to take hours. Yeah. Whereas you could send a U two plane stationed in a nearby country to fly over and get a look right then and there. Yeah. And the way the world works, we need information instantly. We can't wait anymore. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. For for instance, they might have uh, intelligence that a specific operation is going on right now. And they're going to hide whatever it is that they're moving, you know, some some kind of uh, weapons technology or some, you know, uh, something like that or a, or a uh, caravan of people or something. You know, it could be a variety of things that you'd yeah. want to see. Um, and then by the time the Earth rotates back to where the satellite could take a, a good picture of it, it'll be too late. Yeah. Um, so that kind of thing. Yep. Yep. Spy stuff is cool yeah. and scary. Yes, it is. But yeah. um, oh, but and it did uh, play a major part in the uh, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes, it in the nineteen sixties, yes, was did. able to uh, get a, a good picture of what was going on there uh, between the Soviets and the Cubans. Yep. Um, do you? And you know, we didn't mention it, but do you know what the nickname is for the U two? Oh, uh, I did see it a moment ago, and then I scrolled past it in my notes. I, I I'm surprised I didn't mention it already. It is the Dragon Lady. Yes. You don't you don't hear it uh, mentioned. The U two is well known enough by by its normal designation that you don't really hear the nickname very often, like you no. do with the SR seventy one Blackbird. Yeah. 
for example. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's a cool name. Cool name. All right. Well, this wraps up this discussion about the U-2. Like I said, we'll try and do one about Area 51 specifically at some point. Mm -hmm. So we can talk about the other vehicles and technologies that came out of that research facility. Uh, and also talk about why it was so secret and, uh, you know, the whole craziness that surrounds Area 51 and, and how it plays a part in conspiracy theories because, you know. It does? You might not have heard about it. Um, you need to watch this documentary series called The X-Files. It goes all into it. <laughs> but no, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that and we'll, we'll, uh, give a full rundown on, you know, what was believed to happen at Area 51 versus sure. what really happened at Area 51. And when I say really, there were no aliens involved. I was going to say, is this one of those posters that's been on my Facebook feed with what my parents think I do, <laughs> what I actually do? Gosh, I hope that means dead. Um, all right, so we, we just revived it. Sorry about that. Yeah, whoops, took an error to the knee. Wrapping this up. All right, guys. Have a great one. If you have any suggestions for topics that we should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, let us know by emailing us at techstuffatdiscovery.com or send us a message on Twitter or Facebook. Our handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo. 
Play.